Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Jesus is enough. Welcome everyone to the digital stream of our Sunday message at Redeeming Hope. We're actually starting a brand new series today called Gospel Centered Church. So excited about this. As we look at what is the gospel and how does it shape a church culture, we're going to be looking at that over the next few weeks together and we're very excited about that. Before we get into that though, just a few things by way of vision and announcement. First of all, just to remind you of our missional goals, what are we doing here at Redeeming Hope here in Clarksville? Three things, explore, cultivate, and equip. We want to create a a context or an environment where people can come and explore the gospel, explore the claims of Christ, explore their faith. Uh, You know, Jesus often had people come to him and say, what did you mean when you said? And uh, he wasn't threatened by questions, and we aren't either, and we welcome you to come. If you're on a spiritual journey, if you're on a journey of wrestling with the claims of Christianity, the claims of Christ, we welcome you to join us as we explore together. Cultivate. Uh, One of the things we want to do is just cultivate an atmosphere of discipleship, an atmosphere of family, an atmosphere where we're uh, equipping and growing one another together uh, in the gospel and in our faith. Uh, A lot of the language in scripture is family language, and that's what we believe our church is, is we are the family of God. And so we want to cultivate relationships and cultivate uh, spiritual growth and cultivate uh, fellowship and community and uh, keep sowing into that field. In Acts chapter two, it says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship and prayer. So we're devoted to uh, cultivating those things, cultivating uh, our understanding of the gospel and prayer and and fellowship community together. And finally, equip. Uh, We believe that it is the job of those who serve in ministry to equip God's people for works of ministry. Uh, Our job as the pastors, Josh and I, uh, co-lead pastors at Redeeming Hope, our job is not to do all the pastoring or to do all the ministry, but it's to equip the saints for works of service, as it says in Ephesians 4 and 11. And so we want to create an atmosphere where people can grow into spiritual maturity and can be equipped for works of ministry to serve one another, to serve our community for Christ as we're on mission together. A few things by way of announcement. Um, Yay, we finally have a date for uh, an official date for our family day. Uh, we've been, this has been really a challenge for us to work out, but finally we've got a date September 24th, 5 p.m. in the YMCA parking lot, which is where we meet as a church, not the parking lot, but inside, of course, but at the same location. We're going to have a family day, uh, barbecue, bounce house, uh, different games that families can come to, kids can come to and play some games and win some prizes. Just an opportunity for us to hug our community and uh, get to know people. And then want to invite you out the next day to worship with us right there at the Y uh, as we gather uh, inside the Y the next morning. So really it's kind of a family weekend, you know, as we uh, have fun there on the night of the 24th, followed by, um, you know, the time of worship together the next day. The next Hope Youth for middle school and high school students is on September 20, I'm sorry, September 17th, September 17th, 6 p.m., right at uh, the Levandusky home, our home at 921 Kingsbury. We had an amazing time uh, last weekend. I think we had close to 20 uh, attend at our home. We just had so much fun uh, fellowshipping together, 
playing games together, uh, having a gospel discussion discussion together and growing in our faith and challenging one another. Uh, so if you are in middle school, high school, or know someone who is, your family, friends, neighbors, let them know what's going on. September 17th, 921 Kingsbury, 6 p.m. It's going to be a great time. And finally, Pastor Josh will be leading Gospel for Life. He'll have the first session of Gospel for Life before he heads off to Africa. He's going to Togo in October. Uh, but he's going to have the first session of Gospel for Life on September 25th at 1230, which will follow the service on Sunday. And he'll have that at his house. It's just a great opportunity to come together, begin to grow in the gospel, learn what we believe as a church, an opportunity for connection and fellowship and discipleship. Uh, And if that's something that interests you, please contact Pastor Josh. If you'd like to give to Redeeming Hope, partner with us as we are on mission here in this city, reaching this city for Christ. Uh, We welcome you to pray about doing that and join with us as we uh, are on mission to uh, fulfill the Great Commission here in Clarksville, Tennessee. Get my Southern accent down. Remember, I just moved here from New York about 14 months ago, so get my little Tennessee accent down. If you'd like to give to Redeeming Hope, you can give at redeeminghope.org backslash give, and uh, we would really appreciate if you would pray about how you can join us as you know, what we do isn't free. Um, there's a lot of expenses in doing that, renting the Y and, and the, different, uh, the different expenses that we have to make ministry happen. Uh, we, we ask that you join us and partner with us as we serve the Lord here in Clarksville. Okay, good. With that, we are going to begin our series, Gospel-Centered Church. If you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through through 10, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. Series title again, Gospel-Centered Church. The title of today's message is Jesus Plus Nothing. Jesus Plus Nothing. You know, as we learn what Gospel-Centered Church is, we're going to start by looking at another church from... Uh, the early church, the days of the apostles, a church that Paul the apostle himself actually started in Galatia uh, on his first missionary journey. And what we're going to look at is the gospel that drove Paul to plant churches throughout the early Gentile world and the gospel that caused him to face so much persecution. And we're going to do this by visiting a controversy that happened in the church of Galatia which resulted in the book of Galatians because Paul wrote the letter to refute a false gospel, a false teaching that had come into the church. So with that, let's read Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Tim Keller called the book of Galatians gospel dynamite. And uh, with appreciation to Tim Keller, uh, who really helped me grasp some new uh, powerful things in this book, uh, I want to remind you that the book of Galatians is just loaded with gospel dynamite. And what we see here right away is what you might call the forest and the trees. What's the forest here uh, in Galatians? This is a book about the gospel. 
the essential message of the Christian faith. In our passage today alone, the word gospel is mentioned six times. But this book is not for unbelievers. It's not for not yet Christians. It's a book on the gospel that assumes that its audience is believers. This is the forest. This is something we need to notice. And here it is, that the gospel is for Christians. Now, as I've come down here to the South, I've realized that when you say gospel, a lot of think that that's just for, you know, unbelievers, not yet Christians, you know, seekers, altar calls, you know, evangelistic campaigns. We go preach the gospel, but the gospel is for Christians. We need it as much as not yet Christians do. Milton Vincent in his book, The Gospel Primer, which is really, it's not just a book, it's a, it's a tool uh, for churches and families to rehearse the gospel uh, that we believe, that we need to go back to it every day and remind ourselves of it. And here's what he writes in The Gospel Primer. The New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. In fact, in the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in the church that he was anxious, quote, to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Of course, he was anxious to preach the gospel to the non-Christians in Rome, yet he specifically states that he was eager to preach it to the believers as well. The gospel, writes Vincent, is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. Amen. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the essential message of Christianity. It's the heart of our faith. Not simply the door in, as you know, as I've said, as I've kind of observed in the South, some sort of see it as the door in and then you sort of move on from the gospel. No, it's, it's everything. It's the heart of the Christian faith. You might say the engine of the Christian faith. The gospel is a message of redemption in Christ that is our daily access to God. It's like um, Pentagon security pass. If you work at the Pentagon, you won't ever not need your pass to get in. My assumption used to be that the gospel is for, for people who don't believe in Christianity. Um, in another passage, Paul talks about the milk of the word. And I would think that that, that would be the gospel. That's, that's the milk. That's just the very basics, the Sunday school message of our faith. Therefore, uh, I concluded, and many would conclude who believed like I did, that Christians who want to grow need to move on into other subjects. But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't move on from the gospel, like John Stott said, we move on in the gospel. Galatians here stands tall. The gospel is just as important for Christians as it is for non-Christians. If you've been in the faith for two months, two days, two years, or 200 years, what you need is the gospel. If you're suffering, what you need is the gospel. Are you struggling with sin? You need the gospel. It's the good news of our salvation. The gospel is the milk and the meat and the appetizer. That's the forest here in Galatians, something we need to notice. Now, what are the trees? What's, you know, as we, as we get a little closer and, and, and look in detail at this text, what is going on here in this text? There is a controversy happening in the church of Galatia. 
That's why Galatians was written, and that's why Galatians is a controversial book. So what was the controversy going on in the Galatian church that caused Paul to write this letter with these strong words? This book exists because the glory in the New Testament gospel of Jesus' perfect and complete sacrifice was being threatened. False teachers that have been called Judaizers, Judaismizers, they came from Jerusalem, and they held to a lot of the Jewish traditions of Judaism and Christ. They came into the church of Galatia and they were troubling the believers after Paul left the church that Paul established on his first missionary journey. The Judaizers taught that besides faith in Christ, one must also be circumcised to be saved. In other words, yeah, Jesus, yeah, of course we need Jesus. He's, we're into Jesus. Plus circumcision. Now, I don't know how they checked that, but apparently they did in the early church. They had a way of, maybe like a doctor does a physical, maybe a priest or a, you know, they expected a church leader to do some sort, sort of a physical to see if someone had been circumcised. And what they were really teaching was to be really beautiful in the eyes of God, you need Jesus plus you need to keep the law of Moses because circumcision was sort of, sort of just the doorway law into keeping all the laws of, of Moses. So it's Jesus plus keep the law. You might say it this way, Jesus plus be culturally Jewish. And this was to Gentiles, these non-Jews. So to really be beautiful in the eyes of God, to be more acceptable to God, Jesus plus circumcision. What was the gospel though? What is the gospel? Well, let's start with what it isn't. The gospel is not positive thinking. Using God's word like a you can do it motivational tool. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not incantations. Using God's words like witchcraft. I remember a few years ago, uh, I read a story in the local newspaper about how this local grist mill that this organization was uh, trying to restore as sort of a museum uh, field day, or you know, not field day, uh, field trip uh, location for you know local schools. They were trying to restore that, and the construction workers in there ran into all this demonic activity. And I called the owner and I said, hey, you, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. You want me to come and pray over the place? You know, Jesus said, demons have to listen to me. So I'm glad to do that. And he said, well, I already brought a cross in there and, and I waved it over the place. And I, and I, you know, I recited the Lord's Prayer and stuff. I'm just like, this is not an incantation. I mean, that's bad news. You look in the book of Acts, the seven sons of Sceva said to the demons, we cast you out in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the Bible says they were stripped naked and, and, and beat up to the point of bleeding and they ran out naked and bleeding. So the gospel is not incantations where you use God's, word, God's words, you know, like witchcraft in some way. It's not ritualism, turning God's word into an end unto itself as if, as if we maintain our place with God through repetitious, lifeless readings of scripture or religious rituals. The gospel is not moralism, turning God's word into nothing more than principles, morals, commands, and rule keeping, making Jesus our moral hero, not our substitute. It's turning God's word into a way to fix myself and live a better life. It's moralism. Nothing wrong with morals, but you add ism on it, it becomes a fundamental integrating way that we approach God. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not legalism. It's using my obedience to God's law as a standard by which I am declared righteous before God and make myself 
more righteous than others. You know, if I can outdo someone in keeping more rules in some way, that's legalism. It's basing your relationship with God on, on you know, legal, uh, com- you know, the, your, your legal obligation to the law. Author, Pastor C.J. Mahaney said this, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. When I first read that in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, I thought, is that right? What's wrong? I mean, he, he made it sound like obedience to God is a bad thing. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. He's not saying that obedience is bad. He is saying that the gospel detects your motive for obeying God. And if your motive is based on legalism or moralism, trying to earn something from God, trying to gain your salvation through your performance, your ability to keep the law, then the object of your faith is misplaced. Because if you use C.J. Mahaney's definition, the object of a person's faith who believes like that is not Christ and his finished work. The object is me and my work for God. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. So the object of my faith is my obedience. And the object of your faith is everything in the gospel. And that's what Paul's getting to here in Galatians. What is the object of your faith? You know, when I was a kid, I was not a very good basketball player. But I saw a commercial on TV that advertised these Reebok shoes that if I would get those shoes that had a little spring in them, if I could get those shoes, then my basketball game would you know, have a huge upgrade. So I talked my parents into getting me these shoes and um, I got them. And I contacted my buddy Kenny and Trent. I said, time to play basketball, meet you downtown. I just had, uh, what is it called, delusions of grandeur? Illusions of grandeur, however that saying goes. So I would go downtown with my Reebok shoes on and guess what happened? I was just a very, still a very bad basketball player with very nice shoes. My point, I had faith in those shoes, but the object of my faith did not produce for me what it promised, that I'd be better at basketball. The same thing can happen in religion. The object of your faith can be misplaced. The Judaizers, the false teachers, said the object of your faith should be circumcision or your ability to keep the law, your ability to perform for God or or to do good in, in our eyes, at least, in their eyes. To do the thing that we say is good. If you do that, then you're going to be acceptable to God. That's not not the right object of faith. As a Christian, what should our object of faith be? What was Paul's gospel? By the way, Paul, when he he heard this teaching, you can hear it throughout Galatians. He's sort of like, guys, been there, done that. If anybody could claim righteousness through keeping the law, Paul's like, I could. You know, I mean, he was a master of keeping the law before Jesus rescued him from legalism as he, Paul was heading to Damascus to kill Christians who believed in grace. Paul became a preacher of grace himself once Jesus opened his eyes. What was Paul's gospel? Okay, The Judaizers' gospel? Jesus plus circumcision. Paul's gospel? Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. We're saved by grace through faith. That's why the reformers would say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the solas of the Reformation. We're saved by grace. Jesus plus nothing is the foundation on which we do everything. So in the book of Galatians, Paul is clarifying what the true gospel is and refuting the false, teachers of the Ju- the false teaching of the Judaizers. These are 
Paul's spiritual children, and Paul is righteously indignant, furious at the Judaizers. Like a loving father, he calls his spiritual children away from deadly legalism, and he calls them back to grace alone through faith in the cross. His argument was that the teaching of the Judaizers, since it put all hope in our ability to keep the law, discarded the cross of Christ and made it a meaningless act. Paul's gospel taught that circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. You can read about that in Romans 2, 28 and 29, if you'd like to on your own. So what does this passage teach us then about being gospel-centered? The series is called Gospel-Centered Church. What does this passage say about being gospel-centered? I think it says three things. Number one, that it's important. It's really important to be gospel-centered. Number two, it's not easy. You gotta fight for it. And number three, I wanna talk about the remedy to to cure us of that which makes us not gospel-centered. So the importance that it's not easy and to talk about the remedy. Let's talk about the importance of being gospel-centered. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, another letter that Paul wrote to the churches, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Paul says here, I'm gonna share something really important with you. Matter of fact, it's of first importance. You would think he would say that you pray a lot, that you obey the Great Commission, that you go to church every Sunday, all important things, all important things. But he didn't say that here. He said, The thing that is of primary importance is that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's what he said. In Galatians, you could summarize Paul's argument against the false teachers with what he said later in Galatians 2, 21. In Galatians 2, in verse 21. He said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You hear what he's saying there? This is, this is shocking. I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law or through my performance, then Christ died for nothing. He's saying that to depend on works or human merit for salvation or acceptance by God is equal to making the cross mean nothing. Now, nobody watching this that considers himself a follower of Jesus would say that the cross wasn't good enough for me. And yet, if we seek righteousness or acceptance by God through our performance, if we seek to earn God's love through our performance, that is exactly what we are saying. The cross wasn't enough for me. It's not good enough. I need to add to it with my performance. So remembering then the gospel, which means good news, remembering the good news of our salvation, rehearsing the gospel and applying the gospel is of first importance. So first of all, What do we learn about being gospel-centered? It's really important. Got to keep our eye on the ball. Number two, ain't easy. The whole book of Galatians exists because there was a controversy here in the church, as I mentioned. Between our own flesh that constantly condemns us, false teachers and Satan, we have plenty of opposition to steal away our confidence in the gospel. The plain fact is, folks, that the gospel is slippery. It slips through our fingers. We drift, we, we leak in a sense, uh, uh, confidence and, and assurance. 
We, we drift back to moralism and legalism and, and all these other side roads we can get on. Paul said this in verse six of our text today. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. This is like saying, unlike a lot of other subjects the church disagrees on, when it comes to the gospel, you can't have a different view that's close. Now, Christians disagree on a lot of things. Tongues, baptism, healing, miracles, how to gather as a church. There are big divisions over these things. Christian conduct. I mean, you look at the Amish who consider themselves uh, Christians. Their idea is that technology pollutes you. I mean, there's, there's radical differences about some of these, some of the ways that the Christian faith plays out. Use of alcohol, uh, how Christians should dress, a church government. You can have degrees of difference on those issues, but when it comes to salvation by grace through faith, what Paul's saying is you can't differ without being utterly and completely off. Now, somebody might say, why can't we just all get along and love Jesus? The reason is we better be sure that we're following the right Jesus and believing the right gospel because the gospel is slippery. Here's why doctrine is important. There's two extremes within the body of Christ on doctrine. On one hand, there are people who care a lot about doctrine, but somehow have made doctrine just a, a cold academic pursuit. They're very careful to have the right beliefs and very quick to sniff out an error. They know what they believe. It all fits nicely into this system of belief. But for some reason, they've lost their passion for God. They don't tell anyone about Jesus. They become arrogant, looking down at everyone who doesn't have the same doctrinal purity that they have. Doctrine for them is a cold, sterile thing. God is a specimen that they study with the ultimate hope of knowing some stuff and being smarter. So the pendulum swings the other way. We say, well, doctrine divides. What really matters is worship and how you live your life. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus, not facts from a book. You know those cold, arrogant doctrine guys. And because Christianity is more about a relationship with Jesus than about knowing facts, you throw out the pursuit of right doctrine. You don't worry about potentially serious doctrinal errors. You don't want to be the jerk in his ivory tower looking down at everybody else. So for you, it's all about heart and passion. Doctrine just makes you mean, makes you elite, makes you divide yourself from the rest of the body. So it's no good. So for you, doctrine really doesn't matter. Heart does. But both are incredibly important. Doctrine and heart, doctrine and passion, faith and life, both matter. My friend Kevin Maloney shared a helpful illustration on this. He said, imagine you're a firefighter in the city and you spend your time in the fire hall studying maps of the city, studying hose water pressure, studying rescue techniques, but then you get a call that there's a fire. And this is kind of an interruption to what you're doing. Oh man. So you reluctantly slide down the pole, drive your fire engine to the place where the fire is. You see the smoke, you know which building the fire uh, is in, not because you can see through the smoke, but because you memorize all the maps, you know exactly where you need to go. You put the ladder up and half-heartedly climb up, rolling your eyes at the distraction of this fire when the real work of being a firefighter is back at the fire hall. Now, you and I both know that that's a bad firefighter. And people will burn because firefighting is all in your head and it's not accompanied by passion and real action. 
But imagine you're a firefighter in the city and you get the call that there's a fire on the 12th floor of an apartment building. So you slide down your pole, pumped and ready to go. You turn on your lights and siren, man, I live for this. And you go to the rescue. Now you don't know the city that well, so you take a couple wrong turns getting to the building. By the time you get there, the fire is really raging. Lots of smoke, so you can't really see exactly where you're going, but you put your ladder up against the building, climb up, you're running up, you break a window and start rescuing people. And one by one, you pull them down and you're working with passion. You've gone up and down the ladder a bunch of times. You got 20 people on the ground in no time. But it turns out you had your ladder against the wrong building. Now, if firefighting is all in your heart and your head is not engaged, people also will burn. Nobody would say, that doesn't really matter. You had passion, you worked hard, you were brave, you got some people out of a building. Nobody would say that. It matters immensely that you went to the right building. Doctrine without action and passion or heart are both problems. Now, what was happening in Galatia? Paul makes a statement, verse seven. He says, there are some who trouble you and wanna distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is about to point out bad doctrine. The English translator's effort to translate uh, the word distort or pervert is, is their attempt to translate a word that literally means to reverse. That there are some among you who want to reverse or distort or pervert, reverse the gospel. What is Paul saying? That anybody who tries to change the gospel a smidgen is literally turning it inside out. And when it comes to this doctrine, there's no way to be a little bit off. You're either a little off or you're light years away. Martin Luther said about Galatians, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness because there is no alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you don't build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your work. So Paul says they're trying to reverse the gospel. And this implies that the gospel is about a particular order. Here it is. Does God love you and as a result, you love God and seek to live a good life? Or do you come to God and give yourself to God in love and promise to lead a good life and as a result, God loves you? One of those is Christianity. One of those is a false gospel. Does God love us and we owe him? Or do we love God and he owes us? You see how important the order is? The cause and the effect of the gospel? Are there really any alternatives in the middle? Paul is saying that as soon as you move a little bit from the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, you go all the way. Let's look at how this plays out in liberal churches and conservative churches. Okay, let's not pick on not yet Christians. Let's pick on people who consider themselves to be Christians. Liberal churches, what do liberal churches say? You believe you're born again through faith in Jesus? Great. Just add one little thing. Just just say that good people from other religions can still get to God. Don't say that Jesus is the only way, that you have to come through Jesus. Now, is that a small thing? Is it? What are they really saying? Being good is enough. And that completely changes everything. It's no longer salvation by grace through faith. The systems of this world say, when it comes to God, the good people are in and the bad people are out. But in Matthew 22, when Jesus tells the story of his wedding banquet, he compels them to come in. And he says this, 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both the good and the bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Both good and bad? What other religion says that? Most religions say the good people are in and the bad people are out. Not Jesus. Not the message of grace. So what liberals really say, liberal churches really say, is all that matters is that you're good. Your doctrine doesn't matter. But what about us bad people? So when someone says, Jesus Christ, wonderful, but the most important thing is that you're a good person, that reverses the whole gospel. It twists it and turns it right inside out. But here's what we need to remember. The gospel is news. It's not advice. News is something that happened. Advice is something I need to make happen. Advice is something you must do. But the gospel is something has happened. The gospel is not advice. That's not a gospel at all. Paul says any other gospel isn't the gospel. That's liberal churches. Let's talk about conservative churches. Conservative churches often reverse the order of the gospel as well. Here's how it happens. There's two parts to our faith, right? There's what you call justification and sanctification. Justification is being justified in the eyes of God. It's the acceptance of believers as righteous in the sight of God. Sanctification is our actual, actual holy life. It's living it out and growing in God. And these are intertwined, aren't they? The heart and essence of the gospel, again, is order. What's the cause and what's the effect? That's everything in Christianity. That absolutely affects how you view God, yourself, and the entire universe. The order of the gospel is this. Here's the real gospel. Because you're justified, the effect of that is you're sanctified. You grow. You become more like Christ. You do good works. Because you've been totally accepted through grace, the effect is sanctification. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing is the foundation on which you grow in God. We always go back to our justification. You don't do justification. It's been done by Jesus. You receive salvation as a gift and you consistently go back to the love of God in Christ, the finished work of Christ. And on that, the motives of our heart shift and we begin to do good works out of love and gratitude and faith, not moral obligation, religious fear or pride. Now, if you're living a life without fear, if you have a life of joy and gratitude to God, a new desire for who God wants you to be, those are all fruits of believing the real gospel, the gospel of grace. But if you're struggling with fear, you lack joy, you lack gratitude, confused about what God wants for you, that can be a sign that you've reversed the gospel. Justification leads to sanctification. Tim Keller said, for a promise to bring a result, it only needs to be believed. But for a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. The heart and essence of the gospel is the order of justification, being accepted by God, and sanctification, being made holy. Sanctification comes from justification, not vice versa. Reversing these has tragic consequences. You see, conservative churches say, Be sanctified, and the effect of that will be that you're justified. The gospel says you're justified, and the effect of that is you are sanctified. I don't do good works to become a child of God. I do good works because I am a child of God. So if you go into liberal churches, you won't see changed lives. But when you go into conservative churches, I don't know if you can say their lives are changed any more than you see in liberal churches. Richard Loveless, Gordon Conwell, Uh, theological seminary 
said this, in, in their day-to-day existence, conservatives rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscience, willful obedience. Christians who are no longer sure God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from the Christian community about the holiness of God and the righteousness you're supposed to have. So what do you have in conservative churches? Lives that have been changed outwardly through willpower. I have my quiet time, I read the Bible, I dress a certain way, I homeschool. I don't listen to secular music. That's not a changed life. In fact, in conservative churches, there's often a tremendous amount of insecurity and fear. And they look down on everybody else because they've utterly reversed the gospel. When we say, here's the gospel, give yourself to God, promise to serve him, commit. He died for me, I'll live for him. Is that the gospel? Well, yes, in a general sense, but their conversion usually comes in the follow-up because if that's all they believe, what we're really saying is, if you're really good and sorry, then God will reward and accept you. That's reversing the gospel. This is no different than everything else in the world. Every other religion and every system in this world, that's just advice. Don't you see everything outside the gospel terminates on self-salvation. Liberalism and conservatism are fundamentally the same thing. Be good. And it's not the gospel of grace. It's not the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Tim Keller says this, we love to be our own saviors. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive, whether they are religious, Keep these rules and you earn an eternal blessing. Or secular, grab a hold of these things and you'll experience blessing now. Don't you see to lose the gospel a little bit is to lose all of it? It's slippery. What I see today is people swinging from conservatism to liberalism or liberalism to conservatism and skipping right over the gospel. Verse 7, Paul says, there are some who trouble you. The NIV says they're throwing you into confusion. Both are too weak. The word means to destroy and knock down the house. Unless by confusion you mean like a tornado destroying a town. To to trouble them means they're coming in and they're destroying the gospel. They're destroying the good news. Luther was so strong on this when he said, justification by faith is the article by which the church stands or falls. He didn't say baptism is the article by which the church stands or falls. Tongues, church government, whether Christians should drink. No, he didn't say those things are the article by which the church stands or falls. If you reverse the gospel, the church is destroyed. It's like this. If I lose a finger, that hurts. And I'm not going to like that. But I'll live. But if I lose my heart, I die. When it comes to differences in style or conduct, we shouldn't have controversy with other believers. But when it comes to the gospel of grace, justification by faith, we should fight for our lives. And here's how to gauge false gospels. There's, there's this simple grid, who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's how you can measure whether or not something is the gospel or not. Who do they say Jesus is? If they don't say that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the son of God, the God-man, that he was equal with God, 
He said, before Abraham was, he said, I am. Then it's not the gospel. But there's some movements and, you know, sects of Christianity that agree with that. We have agreement on who Jesus is. But the second part is where it often goes south. What Jesus did. Did Jesus save us completely? Did he finish the work for our salvation and purchase us with his blood? Or do we have to sort of earn that with our obedience to him? Or do we just simply receive it by faith? There's radical differences in even movements that call themselves Christianity. And many of them reverse the gospel. Why? Because it's, it's not easy to hold on to it. It's slippery. The gospel is important. It's not easy being gospel-centered. We need to fight for it. And finally, the remedy to losing our grip on the gospel, the remedy to false teaching and false gospels and the addiction to self-salvation is the gospel. Verse 8, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now maybe you think, well, Paul got carried away in verse 8. If an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. Just in case you think he got carried away in verse 8, he says it again in verse 9. He doesn't want you to think verse 8 was an outburst. He'd reflected on this. There's a word called epistemology. And the idea is it's the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from mere opinion. It's the idea that it's not what you know, but it's how you know what you know. And on what basis, you know, what are you basing your authority on to know something? In other words, does what I believe have a basis on which I can claim authority that this is true? And often in controversy, people want to talk about what we know, but we don't want to talk about what we're appealing to as a basis of truth. And we have more fruitless public debates because we won't appeal to our epistemology. When a question is asked, how do you know what you know? A lot of people just say, well, you just know. And that's the, modus, that's the way our culture operates today. I just know in my heart. What we're really saying is, I know because of my feelings, and there's no way to know but by my feelings. And that's the most fruitless epistemology there is. There's no real uh, basis to claim a belief based on feelings. In our society, we end up hollering, I'm right and you're wrong. You turn on cable TV and you see all these, you know, these talking heads and these people yelling at each other, you're right and I'm wrong, and we can't agree. But when you can't agree about what you're saying, we have to stop and ask, ask, how do we know what we know? Modern people base their knowledge almost entirely on feelings, and this is absolutely fruitless. In this text, Paul warns that there's two authorities we must not appeal to. Number one, the experience, our experiences or our feelings. The Bible is saying that in determining what is true, your experiences and feelings mean nothing. Let's say there was a story on CNN News that said, there was an angel. Everybody saw the angel. People videoed the angel and tried to jab it and stab it. Paul is saying is, even if an angel comes into the church, if he preaches a different gospel, ask the angel what he believes about justification and sanctification. Paul says, if he reverses the order of salvation, grab that angel by the wings and throw him out. Your experience does not judge the gospel. The gospel judges your experience. Well, God told me this. Well, God didn't tell me that. Great. What does the Bible say? What does the gospel say? We can't base truth on our experiences or our feelings. We don't bring the Bible 
down to our experiences and emotions. We measure our experiences and emotions based on the Bible and the gospel. The second thing we shouldn't appeal to, according to Paul, is man's authority or position. So listen, as one of the pastors here at Redeeming Hope, if I preach a different gospel than the one I'm preaching you today, if I preach a different gospel at some point in the future, I'm going to say to you what Paul said. Grab me and throw me out. This is crucial. Because in a lot of independent churches, you have strong leaders and pastors who say, don't question me or don't question the tradition of this church. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Listen, Jesus is the Lord's anointed, along with everyone who believes in him by faith. And the Bible teaches the priesthood of all believers. Paul here has a very high office in the early church, doesn't he? He's an apostle. And listen to what he's saying. He's saying, it's not me as an apostle that makes what I'm saying true. I've heard something from the lips of Jesus. I've checked it with the other apostles. I can see it in the Old Testament and the prophets. And it's true because Jesus said it. You can't see, you can't say, well, ultimately what really matters is church authority and tradition. No, the church doesn't judge the gospel. The gospel judges the church. So what the Bible has to say judges churches and has to judge your experience. God can use feelings and experiences, but those must bow to the gospel. They are not the starting point of what is true, nor are church authorities, popes, pastors, priests, elders, or apostles. They are subject to the authority of the gospel and the word of God. So, all that to say, as we close, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Three things. Number one, that the standard by which God accepts me never shifts from Christ's work on the cross to my work. Number two, that the power source by which I'm sanctified never shifts from Christ's power to mine. That Jesus and his Holy Spirit are always the power source for my sanctification and I'm always depending upon his grace at work through the Holy Spirit. And number three, that the cultural cornerstone that shapes the church never shifts from Christ's love and grace to human tradition, personal preference, or works righteousness. The gospel always has authority. We always measure who we are and how we're acting and what our culture is like based on the gospel. And we'll be looking more at these ideas in the, week to, in the weeks to come. For now, let's pray. Help us, Lord, to believe and love the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Let it run in us and through us, exploding our hearts and everything around us. Help redeeming hope and our groups and our relationships to be a gospel-centered church and a gospel-centered culture. Lead us to that place, Holy Spirit. Fill our minds and our hearts with your word, your truth, and your spirit in the days to come. And shape us by that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for watching. And remember, as always, Jesus is enough. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.